Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Lenny Kay, who, depending on the way you've interacted with musical culture, you hear that name, and if you know it, and you should know it, you might think of Nuggets, the first collection of garage rock that ever existed, kind of invented what garage rock was. You might know Craw Daddy, the magazine that he founded or helped found and wrote for. You might know the Suzanne Vega albums that he produced, including the one with Tom's Diner and Luca on it, and the first one, which is one of my favorite albums of all time. Or you might know him in the role that I guess he's most known for, which is being the guitar player who's been next to Patti Smith on stage for most of 60 years or something like that. Yeah, yeah. 50... 53, 54, it's hard to imagine. There was an interregnum, but basically they've been together for most of the time. He's also someone who would know how to use the word interregnum. (laughs) Uh, And um, I have known Lenny, we haven't seen each other much lately, but I've known Lenny since I was still in college. And man, it's great to see you. Well, it's great to be here, Brian. We've interacted many a time over the years and, you know, we've kept our heads above water, which is a great thing. It really is. Well, I think you know, because I think right from when we met, I think we met between my junior and senior year of college or something like that. And I remember even then sort of being drawn to you, as I'm sure many sort of young people who want to be in the arts in some way that's unclear. I remember being drawn to you because of the way you talked about what it meant to kind of live a life that was driven by creative considerations. Ah, amen, amen. And when did that notions start kind of like forming in in your head that living a life that was kind of driven by these creative things meant something different maybe than the typical kind of existence well i mean who would dream it you know i was just walking past over here past nyu where i did my master's degree in american history you know at that time i really had no idea what i was going to do what i was going to be the fact is actually in college I'm very well trained. I started a band in college, the zoo, and I studied cultural history, and I guess I'm still, you know, I'm a writer. I love to write. I love to play music. And, of course, you need a lot of luck. I mean, if I wasn't located in downtown Manhattan in 1968, 69, kind of a a hotbed of creativity, would I have been able to follow the same path of creativity well oh yeah i that was the other thing i meant to say you know i didn't write a bio for you because i obviously like know you for so long and know who you are but you're also and i, I shouldn't say also i mean you're a, ve- a really established and important uh, writer and not just about music but about music and about history lightning striking is just awesome i'll oh, tell you, you. I, that's his most recent book which deals with 10 really crucial moments in the history of rock and in fact the book is so effective, dude. I got to tell you, I'm a very fast reader, but I have not finished it because I've been listening to it. Oh. And every 20 minutes, I have to go and listen to two hours worth of music. That's awesome. I, that's what I've been doing. Yes. It just sends me to, I put playlists together because you get onto one record and then I go create a station off that record. And then I'm suddenly lost in the world that you were describing. And an amazing thing, and it's if you're a writer, if you read Tool, if you read the autobiography of Waylon Jennings, and then you read Lightning Striking, you will see. And I have questions about this. That I'm going to ask you later that I wrote down different prose styles, and in fact, like you almost 
the thoroughness and the rigor of the research uh, that you learned, that's what made me, of the, the yeah. history, the thoroughness is there, uh, the fact that you clearly researched. I remember running into you in a bookstore twice when you were writing the Whalen book and you were lost in research because you wanted to get it right. And uh, people don't think that when you write somebody's quote autobiography that you have to do a ton of research and talk to 20 people in their inner circle and see it, the whole picture of where they were through their eyes. I mean, there's a lot of creative writing in Whalen's book. However, I read it now, and I can't tell where what Whalen yacked to me one afternoon in Kansas City and what I made up in my basement because you inhabit the person. And I really like that. And then, of course, there's my third book. I might not have another one in me called You Call It Madness, which is really obsessional. I almost think of lightning striking as kind of the mid-ground of my writing and research. And then you have the poetical thing of You Call It Madness, the sensuous song of the croon, where I just let my poetic end go wild, you know, not to the best of commercial. Are you, you going to, well, I'll ask you this, I'm going to, since you brought it up, are you going to write a proper memoir as a last sort of uh, I don't book? want to. To be honest, I don't really see the need. I folded enough of myself into, into lightning striking. I wanted to be a minor character. You know, to me, I'm just a worker. I really don't think that people are interested in the details of my life or who were my girlfriends in the 1970s or what life was like behind the scenes with Patty, because actually I respect all of our privacies. You know, I mean, so I don't really, but I wanted to make, Enlightening Strike, I wanted to tell my story through the music that inspired me, helped make me what I was then and what I would be, and I was a witness. I mean, there's that line where I say where it's the saculum, which the Etruscans talk about, which is when you have first-person knowledge of a certain time before it's all history. With the Russ Colombo book, I actually got to speak to two people who saw Russ Colombo, really elderly Italians. One lived in uh, Little Italy, who saw him over at the Academy of Music. Another woman who saw him over at the Brook. And to see the world through their eyes was incredible. So, you well, know. When you talk about seeing the world through people's eyes, you do have this gift. I've wanted to say this to you for a long time, and I might have when I was young, but I've been thinking a lot about these events that got me to where I am, and meaning that made me leave being someone who was shepherding artists and writers and to become right. the thing, right? And you know, man, you somehow, and I was hard to see when I was 21 years old because of like where I was from and just the way I was. But I don't even know if you remember this, but my early 20s when I was doing A&R still, you brought me back a book from England. I did. Yeah, you gave me the Nick Hornby book, High Fidelity. Oh my God. Oh. Such you a beautiful read it book. in England. Yes. And it was only available in England. And you came into my office and you said, Man, I read this and thought of you, and I picked one up for you. And oh, nice. you need this book. And you kind of like basically knew I was someone who was reading and thinking about this stuff in a different way. And you know, we weren't close friends or anything. You knew that I looked up to you, but we weren't like close friends. And you for no reason, like just said, like you need this thing, and it was like a really big deal to be seen in that. Oh well, way. you know, thank you. I mean, you know, it's great to find like-minded people. It's great yeah. to find people who have the artistic beating heart. 
I think of it. And you know, both of us have crossed the line between writing, experiencing music, being a fan of it, which yes. is so important, and seeing the world through artistic eyes. I mean, you really, I think you met me as a producer when I was, you know, riding the wave. And we were talking about it with seeing things through people's eyes. Well, what else is a good producer but seeing the work of an artist through their eyes and then helping them, you know, you're the mirror where, you know, your tie needs a little adjusting. Well, yeah, and it's a thing like going through life with a kind of curiosity, which you do, and which I keep as like a North Star. Too many rabbit holes, that's what I do. No, but it's really like, don't yeah. you, it's like, because I remember, you know, I, I know why we met and I was trying to get you to produce something when I was a kid and an artist I was working with. But the point is, and, and you didn't want to do it. And, but the thing was, the way you talked about why you didn't want to do it, the thought process, the kind of rigor with which you approached it, the questioning, even though I was personally disappointed, it was like incredibly instructive to, to me about the way someone, I mean, I still remember. I remember that artist, believe me. I <laughs> but I That's were, okay, which is, she was a great artist and I was not the right person for it. Right, well you talked about, what I remember was you talked about, and I, the conditions you were able to set up for Suzanne Vega and the kind of rules and the way you approached it and what your role was and how you could find your way in and how this you could appreciate and recognize but if you personally couldn't find your way in, you'd be faking it. The find the way in thing, exactly. But that's a crucial thing for anyone who wants to do anything in the arts. You can't force your way in for these other, you might have a hit, but if we're talking about trying to do a thing that makes you work from the, because one of the things that taught me, Lenny, and that you've lived, that seems to me, is that the whole point of doing this stuff is to find a way to live from the most alive part of yourself. Amen. That's the only way you'll connect that thing happens where yeah. you transmit that to the people receiving it. And you were like basically saying, not in those words, well, I can already tell this might work. She's great, but I wouldn't be working from that place that makes me want to get up and do this. Yeah, I mean, or really do what the artist needed. And really, when you're gonna work with somebody's creative art, you gotta make sure you're in sync. I mean, the Whalen book, he didn't know me. He'd gone through two, two writers already. You know, I paid my way down there to meet him because he was done with this idea. And I told him, I said, you know, I know there's a lot of sex and drugs in your story, and we all like that. And perhaps another writer would, you know, zero in on that. But I said, yeah, I'm a player. I'd like to know what it's like to be on the road 200, 250 nights out of the year and why you do it. And he says, well, come on the bus. And the next thing I know, I'm, you know, there in Kansas City and... You know, Johnny Western, the singer from Have Gun Will Travel, is at our dinner table. And Waylon, me and just, we just got along great because I understood him. I knew how to write his book. And it was a wonderful experience, I have to say. When those moments happen, though, where like you were on one train, and you're, you've had a few of these moments. One, when Patty was like, I'm going to go with Fred to Detroit. I'm not doing this anymore. And changed, like suddenly that train stopped. Yeah. And then the producing train, because the whole business changed, the producing train kind of stopped for a while. Yeah. And you're like, okay, well, I was a writer. I'm going to go do this again. Because these creative lives are so interesting to me, these moments in creative lives. Because I know, you know, being on the road playing guitar back then, it's not like, even though you made a lot of money from doing Suzanne, like that, what seems like a lot of money from the outside four years later, 
you know. Well, it funded all the red ink uh, projects I took on in the in, right. in the meantime. Of course, I, all the ones that I loved. I made beautiful records that you know never did this or that. But I take them out and I listen to them and I think, man, you know, I, I forgot them. You I'm know, so I, glad I did that. Martin Stevenson, the Dainties. You know, I said, man, I like that song. You know, so I took out his record. I did it in 1992 in England, and you know, nothing ever happened with it. And I listened to it and I'd forgotten how great it was yeah. and I said wow that part is great how did that you know it's just like in the end it's like nuggets I hate to say it because it's talking about an album a compilation album half a century later is crazy but I just went on what I liked you know I, I what was to my heart and Jack Holzman Lord love him he didn't you know he didn't try to push me this way or that way or say, oh, no, this is not good or this is good. He gave me the keys to the kingdom and let me do what I wanted. And for whatever I did, and I can't really stand outside it that well, you know, we're still celebrating it. How, well, it's worth it. The album's amazing to this day. How did you decide, like when you made the choice, okay, I'm going to go now and go write Waylon Jennings' book? It's were, not a choice. Sometimes you just got to see what life offers you. I, when the Whalen book came, I was really just tired of being in the studio. I'd really worked hard. I could see that my stock, I was right. uh, suddenly yeah, in, yeah, the, yes. in, the, in the, you know, demos for $3,000 range with groups that I had no idea, you know, why they came to me. I had just finished three months, not every day, of course, doing four songs for a, a, a girl who uh, was signed to German BMG. They came out great. But, you know, she would, I don't even want to, you know, it's just like she wa needed to warm up for two hours to sing, and then, of course, her voice was blown, and then she'd start a really great take, and she'd be there, and then she'd say, oh, no, that's uh, not good. Yeah, well, uh, you know, because yeah, you can't confront your emotions. Anyway, three months, finished mixing at Bearsville, walked outside, thought, and she comes out, and she starts crying, and she says, I hate my record. And I said, I thought to myself, I got to get out of this. And, and then, then I went down to New York and, met, and went to some event with David Dalton, the writer, and he just had finished Marianne Faithful's book, and he said, you know, you should do one of these. And they turned me on to his agent. His agent brokered me with Waylon, and, you know, it was almost like producing a record, but not. Yeah, you just knew you could do it somehow. Well, yeah, I've been writing for 50 years. I love to write, and when I, you know, I kind of miss it. I, my book, Lightning Striking, took like, six years oh I couldn't listening to the book and reading it I can't imagine I was thinking about it also I want to talk about the vernacular which we will and how you think about style but thinking about you as a producer and the A&R all the parts of it and even giving me that book it reminds me of one of my favorite stories you know at the beginning of one of the Salinger's books that story about the dun colored mare like the person sent out to get oh. a black stallion and they find the best one they say and then they but it turns out to be a dun colored mare and one of the guy who doesn't know it turns to the king and says oh I thought this guy was supposed to be great at picking horses and the king says well he's so good at picking horses that he's able to see the stallion's heart in the dun colored mare yes. it's like one of the greatest stories but I do think you have a bit of that ability in, in you, meaning like it's whether it's Jim Carroll or it's Patty or all through uh, Suzanne to kind of recognize, as you say, like this beating artistic heart. Yes. And I, I wonder if that's just always been who you are or if, because uh, we all go through life, right? And there's these mundane parts of life. And like you got to, sometimes all of us have to remind ourselves, no, head up, eyes really open, ears out. 
Is it conscious on your part or are you just going through life and something strikes you? I'm digging. I mean, really, in the end, I just look for what I'm, I love. I mean, you know, and if I can't get into it or I, you know, I'm not going to get into it, but there's so much out there in the universe. And, you know, to find an artist that touches your heart and you can actually, like, sit beside and, you know, discuss something, that's always a great thing. Or a book. I mean, it's really great, and I've been able to sustain it. I mean, you know, you're also against the thing where you have to keep the cash flow Eat. going. So those fleet of Lamborghinis I have, yeah, you know, absolutely. they need a lot of gas. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, to be honest, my wants are very modest. I live in a crazy little house in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, I got, you know, I got all the guitars I need, too many records, too many books. And whatever I find, I can follow that little trail. And you still trawl around for it, right? Like every day, you're still in bookstores because I used to run into in bookstores. Like you're still in bookstores, and you're still in record shops I am. <laughs> and guitar shops, and I all mean, that you know, stuff. And I'm always like, oh man, this is cool, or you know, followings. I mean, the lightning striking was total fun. I, I thought each chapter would take about two months. Ha 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 ha. That's absurd. It's almost like moving into the town at the moment when it was happening, and then absorbing all the music, listening to it every day, finding. You know, finding the characters in there that I might have heard their name. I mean, to be honest, the Seattle chapter, I never listened to Mud Honey. They were a hoot. Yeah, I was a big Melvin's fan, of course. To dig deeply into Soundgarden and Malfunction, you know, Andrew, uh, the group that became Mother Love Bone, yeah. it became, you know, I mean. Andrew Wood. Dig, yeah, Andrew Wood. To dig deep into these things and hear all the weird tracks and stuff. I'm blessed. I just got a phone call from Charles R. Cross, you know, the great, because I... Oh, he has, he has the pictures, right. And I, I was, I saw Mud Honey in Seattle. Wow. When, basically when the single came out before the album, I was the, my first week officially doing A&R. And a oh guy that I worked with, Peter Philbin, was like, he hired me. And he was the guy who was like, you should be in, when I delivered Tracy's rack album to, to Electra, he was like, I took him around Boston to see bands. And he was like, you should be an A&R guy. I was like, that's all I want to do. At that time, I was 20 years old, 21. Yeah. And he's like, so he got Kras to hire me. I met Kras, you know. And then we met in Seattle and went to see Mud Hunt. So I saw, I was there. At the moment. I watched those people go insane. I didn't get Mud Honey, but I got what the fuck was going on. The vibe. And it was like nothing I'd ever been exactly a part of. So yeah. You dove into these roles, but also I was going to say, and I was going to get to this later, but I'll get to it now. What's so fun about the way you wrote this book, because I'm only however long into it, I'm hours into it, because it's, by the way, it's really <laughs> worth it. It's 17 hours on audio, and I'm like... It's not as easy to do as I thought. I said, oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I wondered know. how you did the audio. Did you do it in hour chunks at I did it about... No, I did it. Tony Shanahan guided me through. It's really amazing when you start, and also some of those really long sentences. But yeah, you know, I mean, I could get like, Two, two paragraphs, three paragraphs before I'd fuck, I, I, you know. But also you got, what's fascinating to me is like the different chapters, the sort of patois does shift to the patois of the scene in a way. You're you and you're writing it, but you're, you're deploying. I'm kind of, yeah. The, the lingo that's really appropriate. Lingo is so appropriate, man. I mean, li lingo, you need the right, you know, the right taglines because it's how you describe something. I mean, the best thing about the book is that I could also be in one of those scenes. Of course. Which was... Now, of course, you're in the one... Yeah. And I remember that moment because I love 
San Francisco, I, you know, I traveled there in the summer, loved to see that. But, right. you know, and I was kind of peripherally, you know, involved with the Detroit scene. But to actually stand outside CBGB's one moment and think, man, this is a little bit like San Francisco in the days of the Fillmore or the MC5 at the Grandy. This is really a locus of energy. And then, of course, to see it explode. Well, yeah, sometimes I think about all, like, all of you there. And, I mean, you guys became famous right before. But, like, even television was playing those songs there. Like, those guys were standing on that stage right after you or right before you yeah. some nights. Yeah. Um, forget, the, like, the most famous of the bands, but even the bands that were slightly less famous were amazing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I love the Miamis. Right. <laughs> we deliver 24 hours a day. Oh, can't beat that. But, you know, you had the reverse of the experience you're talking about where you're open and getting hit with something and you follow it. So you and Patty and the band played Madison Square Garden a couple weeks ago, opening yes. for the National. I don't know what your experience on stage was, but let me tell you the experience of being in the audience that night. Forgetting my feeling for you and seeing you up there, but I know that a lot of the audience didn't, really come everyone knows patty's name and everyone knows patty is this poet and they know that she's this incredible writer that just kids is one of the greatest memoirs ever but i will say people around me some people i even was that were there with were like is this just gonna be depressing like it was one of those things where a legend comes on stage and i think a lot of the audience was not expecting what happened to happen let me tell the people listening what happened was after the first song, Patty read Hal. And it's the kind of thing, and if someone t told you this, she read the holy section from Hal. But Patty Smith reading something, and it took me to that moment in your book, because Patty reading something, it's not like when you hear someone reading something, you, what you imagine. Huh. Patty is Patty because when her understanding of how to inhabit yes. something like that. Perfect word. Well, she does, right, man? And she starts doing this thing. And it's a benediction for art and poetry yes. and life and this moment we're in together and being present mm -hmm. and understanding the holiness right now. And everyone in the fucking garden stood the fuck up. And by the end of that, you she'd whipped the place into a frenzy. And then you guys crashed into your next song and the place was yours. And the yeah. garden was, it was one of the greatest things. And everybody in the section I was in was freaking the fuck out of me. They were demanding you guys play more. By the time you hit people have the power and Patty is, you know, frothing at the mouth, screaming, and you guys are playing your asses off. I have to say, it's one of the best sets I've seen at the Garden in 30 years. All right. But what did it, like, you've played a million of those shows, but it's Madison Square Garden. It's not an audience that's come to see you. Right. Did you guys know that you'd sort of like blew the place apart like with everyone I mean you saw it right everyone well, we standing were, up we were especially being focused we wanted to be great <laughs> you know we were really you know sometimes we wander around a little yeah, bit yeah because you're you're following yeah. the curiosity so you yeah. mean you guys beforehand were like we're here but we knew that you know we wanted something really make a statement to to show our New Yorkness and I have to say, the National gave us really good respect. They let us use their screens. They didn't cut our power. They didn't turn the lights on. You know, no, I mean, it was clear Matt wanted to celebrate. Matt and they, oh yeah. the whole band they wanted us. They gave us an hour to, to you know, they, they gave us really excellent respect. And we, we wanted to show out for our hometown, essentially. It was really 
a very focused show. But I, you know, even though you're, you know, a little on edge before you do that, because again, you don't know what the situation is going to be in of your crowd. But on the other hand, I know Patty. She is 110%. I've never seen her sing a false note in my life. Right. 50 years. Right. right. Never. Totally means it. Totally keeps trying to bring the audience to her. And, you know, we knew that we were doing some of our favorite songs. And we just like, you know, I mean, I, I understand the power of Patty. I mean, I have to say, sometimes I don't think people get what a great rock and roll band we are. You know, they, you know, it's I like, think that's kind of a little I'm, bit weird. But that is, but that night you guys weren't weird. We're not like, weird. That night, we know how you to were do just it. rocking the garden. Yeah. The Patty did the thing with Hal, which could, in other hands, could torpedo the night, right? Most people trying to read Allen Ginsberg at Madison Square Garden at a show that's not your show, that's a flying Willenda move. Oh, yeah. But... Well, but for Flying Willenda's Barnum and Bailey Circus, you know, we all saw them do those triple somersaults and grab the ring. They could do it. She understands. She's a powerful reader. She, when she reads her own stuff, when she reads... She reads, you know, does a William Blake. We, you know, we used to do my Blakeian year, and she always opened it up with Tiger Burning in the Night. She comes from spoken word, and that's how she learned how to sing. those kind of moments do you lose yourself to it at all do you let it go is it feeling like you're flying once you're there you want it to be focused and thing but when it's happening well are it's you like surf it's, it's, it's like a train you know all of a sudden you every all the wheels are in motion you're going clickety clack click clack you know and you got that momentum and you know we could feel the people's That's attention could you feel it we could feel that we, they, you know, they weren't like, blah, 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 you know, and wandering around. You know, when we came on, there was like, you know, maybe two thirds filled. Yes. By the second song, third, I couldn't, it was filled. And we have enough faith. I mean, you know, we've played big places. We played Glastonbury when the Dalai Lama came out and got sung Happy Birthday. I mean, but on the other hand, you know, we could feel the energy in the room and just corralled it and kind of, projected it through ourselves you know I wanted to play like you know when I took my solos you know I knew there was a big screen on there but I can't think about that you know it's like a lot in the 90s when I wasn't playing a lot of live guitar yeah. and you know whatever kind of and I was living in Pennsylvania thinking exactly why am I here so I got into motorcycles you know aside from you know I'm in my mid-40s and I need more bikes in the garage there was something about when you're going around a curve at 80 miles an hour that you can't think how cool you're doing it. So you've just got to be the machine, be the mind body. It's like being there and not being there. And I always went, when I came back to, when Patty came back and we started playing live and the motorcycles lost their allure, I always remember that. It's like, I, I don't want to think, well, I'm, you know, moving that little note just, you know, wow, that was a good note because I know I'm going to miss the next one. So you just got to be there. And sometimes, like when I'm playing the solo to Piss in the River, I'm not playing it for me. I'm not even playing it for the audience. I'm playing it because Patty is standing right next to me. That's and awesome. I want to make, you know, I want her to feel what I feel when she, in the middle of Southern Cross, she has people raise their arms. And man, when she asked them to raise their arms. Every arm in the place. <laughs> it was there. I felt like the Knicks. 
Every, <laughs> no, but it was, man. And what a thing that you get to stand there with one of the titanic forces of and, and, all time. And how did I get there? I mean, this is where we were talking about, yeah, talk about you it. know, place and being somewhere. And in January of 1971, I exchanged some letters with Greg Shaw, the great power pop fan and garage aficionado. And, you know, we're talking about nuggets and I'm saying, yeah, I'm doing this record for Electra, you know, and got any suggestions and blah, blah, blah. And I said, in two weeks from now, I'm doing a poetry reading with this local, you know, strange poet down at St. Mark's Church, you know, February 10th, 1971. And I look at this letter and I think, this is exactly when my life turned on a dime. But would it have turned on a dime if I was living in Boston? Let's not even say Peoria, Illinois. But, you know, so... I'm in the right place. I'm in the right, right mental framework. Well, you were, but she reached out to you because you wrote something. Yeah, I, I wrote something in Jazz and Pop magazine called The Best of Acapella, which was like a little tri-state afterglow of doo-wop music where groups would come in and record acapella and mostly sold by, you know, record stores, Village Oldies, uh, House of Oldies here, The Relic Rack in Hackensack. Very small little thing, but I was into it and I wrote this article because... I thought I was the only person that knew about this. <laughs> so, you know, and I had a chance to do it. And that's when Patty called me up because I'd seen her around, but I never introduced her. You know, we didn't know each other. And she said that really reminded her of the music she grew up with in South Jersey. You know, that kind of doo-wop. And my the hero. way you wrote about it. it, uh, it yeah. Appealed it so, like, you were following... I mean, it's a perfect example of this where... We met over you, literature. You yeah, you weren't writing that stuff in those in that magazine as a way to audition yourself for gigs to write to be no. a musician you were I was trying to get into rolling Stone, right yeah you were right <laughs> but this thing happened and yeah. you played it and, and when you played the first thing where you're backing her up that was it each for two and a half real. years we never did it again it wasn't supposed to be right. oh, let's right. get no, we're getting a band together you know no we did some kind of weird art thing at saint mark's church i actually got a a tape of it from Bridget Polk, and I, I, I put it out. If you don't have a copy, I'll, I'll send it if you want to hear it. I do. You know, we didn't do anything for two and a half years after that. You know, and when she did another poetry reading, she says, oh, why don't you come up and... But you hung out a lot of that time. Oh, right? I, not so. really, you know. She was... Uh, with Robert or... Robert, and then she was with Ellen. You know, she was following her own thing. She went to Paris with her sister, Linda. I mean, she got some offers to do, to lead a band after the St. Mark's thing. Steve Paul really wanted her and Rick Derringer to work together. But she didn't feel like she was either ready or Patty with the guy who wrote, guitars and women, they cost and they take so damn much. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is, that's a great, that's a Rick Derringer lyric. I mean, that would have really been something. Well, he also know, wrote Hang On Sloopy. You know, he was you know, one yeah. of the, he was great. He was, he a, was great a great talent. guitar player. You great know, guitar player. Rock and roll hoochie coop. Yes, no but, doubt. But, you know, anyway, I mean, but it grew so organically and that's, Again, you can't plan this stuff. I really, I mean, I didn't plan to meet Suzanne Vega, except we met and, you know, our minds melded in terms of what she was trying to do with her but music. You certainly couldn't have known that you were, certainly weren't aiming to have a number one pop record with Suzanne Vega. No, I was just, you know, I wanted her to have a good life on the folk circuit and maybe, you know, address some things that wasn't, you know, that she was, you know, that she needed to amplify, like her affection for Lou Reed and stuff. Right. You know, that she was more of a modern musician than a folk musician. 
But again, you know, you just don't know. You, these are such... Did you learn from like John Kay? Like when I've wondered this because like there's this... For guys of my generation, you know, you're 19 or 20 years older than me, but for like people of my generation who are people who love all this, the mysteries of... And I want to talk about mystery in a second too, but the mysteries of the Velvet Underground, really. Even I listen to... Well, I've they're my favorite to, band of me, all yeah, time. Me, certainly one of my five favorite bands yeah. of all time. I so just like, got to sing All Tomorrow's Parties at the Mercury Lounge with Diane Gentile. I never sang it before. She suggested oh, it. Oh, say hi to her for me, it's please. It's awesome. And she's just a heart and soul. But anyway, um, let's not get off the... Uh, she, I mean, I'm so happy for her because she was like a promotion person in the record biz. Oh, yeah. And has found her way now to live in this and life that she great. wants to live. She was fantastic, you know, and uh, I don't know, just a great human being. Right? I mean, you know... Great human being. That's so cool that you're saying But So then you find yourself later in this, actually in the studio with Kale. Right. And I wondered about this because you're very good. Like even with Suzanne, you know, you were kind of put in a thing where you're working with a guy who's an engineer, a producing partner. And it seems to me you're very good at navigating these things where ego doesn't get the best of you. Not that you don't have an ego, but where you're like able to, because like with Patty, like you were largely the musical direction in some way, even if she wrote, like now you're working with one of the most legendary figures and a guy who's an idol on some level, especially back then. Now you're a grown-up who doesn't have it. But you know what I mean? At the time, <laughs> yeah, no. you're 20, whatever. It's like, holy shit, I'm sitting here with uh, John Cale. What did that feel like for you? And, and uh, sitting there in, in, in a room with Cale produ- you know, producing you. Well, I mean, I wasn't strangers to rock stars by then. You know, I mean, one of the benefits of being a, a rock scribe uh, sure. in the early 70s is that, you know, you're having beers with Alice Cooper and, you know, you're loaning your EC collection comic to Lou at the end of his Max's Kansas City, and then he disappears. And then you get a, and they think, oh, well, there's my EC comics. And then all of a sudden you get a, a package in the mail and he's returned them. I mean, they weren't unfamiliar to me. I'd never really met John. And he was an interesting, as a producer, because I'm in the band, and like I say, I, I think he had a, a, lot, a, big, a little different idea of what he wanted to do with Patty. He was into the Beach Boys and orchestral and the whole thing, and we're into like, you know, kind of keeping our live feel together. Not the easiest thing in the studio, but I gotta say, sometimes in a kind of clash of personalities, and there were some excellent clashes between him and Patty, things come out. Birdland started as a three-minute poem avec uh, piano and a little, you know, bird cries on the guitar. And when he, you know, he wanted to do it live, and he said, well, if you want to do it live, you have to do it live. Really? Go, yeah. And so we did it, you know, three more times. We got to seven minutes, and it sounded pretty good, actually. I've heard it recently. It's, you know, could have chosen it. You know, and so he just drove us crazy, and that's the live one that came out on the record out of nowhere. You know, it's a producer and an artist. There's a kind of synergy between them. Sometimes what doesn't work out is really good. Conflict is, I sometimes, I feel, is positive energy. But in the end, it was great to work with him. It was great to get to know Lou and go motorcycle riding out there in the, uh, <laughs> in the wilds of New Jersey. I don't know. I just love them. And the more I listened to what the Velvets did, they're one of those groups that the further you get from them, the greater they get. It's the craziest thing. I, yeah, people, okay, I've had this problem with where I try to explain, hey, listen to the Velvet Underground. People 
because of what was always said about them then yeah. was they're avant-garde and not commercial. People now think that means that, oh, they're difficult to listen to. Right. But and I, so you know what I steer people to? I say, look, this weird guy sings a few of these songs, but you got to st- put on Loaded. Yeah. Because if you go listen to Loaded... Every song on that album is a fucking monster. Loaded with hits. That's what it, they thought. No, but it is loaded with hits. It, it is. Every song on that record is amazing. And I'm like, that's a great way in. Because Lou wrote, the, even though Doug sang yeah, them, I Lou wrote them. I heard Sweet Jane in ShopRite the other day over the thing. I that's thought, funny. What? Jack is in his corset and yeah. I'm there, you know, checking out my pasta or whatever. No, I mean, singing all tomorrow's parties the other day. I never really actually parsed the lyrics. Right. I mean, yeah, I kind of knew them, but to actually see the way they were constructed and the words, you know, amazing stuff. Uh, we used a lot of Velvets and Lou on Billions, and, um, you know, we used Summer Cannibals on Billions to, like, start and end an episode. Oh, good. Patty. All right. a record. Yeah, a big, really huge moments. Um, oh, great, great. Which, which played incredibly well. That's one of the greatest things about the, the, the gig yeah. is picking the music with Dave. Like, you know, because I can get that stuff out. And so using some really great, weird Velvets moments are in- incredible. So did you kind of, through that experience, decide you wanted to be a producer when, like, you were being produced by someone else? No, I mean, actually, I wanted, I, I thought my career path, if we can use the word career, was going to be as a producer, because as a writer, and again, I didn't have any great dreams. I thought might might be in a band or something, but, you know, I didn't really think, you know, anything would stick, especially in the early, you know, around 1971. There's no music scene in New York except for the New York Dolls. So I was mostly a writer, and, you know, my mentor was Richard Robinson, who had progressed from writing into producing. And so in January of 72, I produced my first album, The Sidewinders, with Andy Paley for RCA. I guess it would be called Power Pop. You know, it was one of those albums that you, it was re- reacting against progressive rock. Right. So it was short songs, choruses, you know. I oh, guess. yeah. I, I saw what, I mean, your Ten Commandments of punk, uh, <laughs> you literally say something about ELP not being like progressive music. I like music, progressive yeah. music. Actually, I, there's nothing that I like better than a good 18-minute symphonic cut with lots of weird things happening. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, I love Rush. Is like, I love Rush. So, like, I, but that's because they really meant it. They're yeah. really doing it. They and, get off on it. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, but that was my critical stance, I guess. You know, yes. the Stooges bringing it back. Of you course, know, of All course. of these, you know, the elementals of rock and roll when things get too over the top. So that's, well, that's where I thought yang, I would right? wind up as a record producer, you know. But Is that how you viewed your role when you were a guitarist in a band, too? Meaning I, It helped. I mean, I did Patty's first single for our own label, and, you know, we had a whole three-hour session. I actually got to produce something. I said, we, we did a version of Hey Joe, and I said, can, can I go out and put, like, a bass drum going, boom, 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 boom. Well, we had a 20-minute discussion of that in a three-hour thing. But I went and put it, you know, and we did Tom Verlaine. I mean, I kind of knew my way around studios or watching them. I mean, I was in the studio when uh, Richard produced uh, The Flame and Groovies, Teenage Head. So I, I thought that would be one of the ways in which, you but, know. but then when you consciously, I've always wondered this too, 
But you were, even though I, I understand what you mean about the thing ebbing, suddenly the producing gigs weren't as, they weren't as high paying. It wasn't as secure a thing. The world changed. But when you got the call, I remember, I actually, you know, I did speak. I remember around the time you decided to go back on the road. And I've, I've often wondered, was there any hesitation in just saying, okay, I'm full throttle committing I, to being I, in this band again? No, no, I mean, there was no hesitation. I mean, I, I you know, I adore Patty. And I, the fact that I came in under tragic circumstances yes. was strange. I respected Fred. I understood why she went to Detroit and what she needed to do and also what she needed to do when she came out of there, you know, and... Uh, yeah, she needed to support her. I mean, she said it. She needed to go support her family yeah, and all yeah. that stuff. And I, you know, I mean, but... And to be honest, that year, I had whatever residual thoughts I had when, you know, I just, at that point, I just figured, yeah, you know, let's put it in the past. Marianne Faithful covered Ghost Dance, and then I went to see Natural Born Killers, and our Outlaw song was... Uh, prominently displayed in there and I thought well that's a good like little thing I mean I never right. really thought that I would play again with Patty but I just thought that period of my life is really now fully in the past 15 years in the past you know and then of course <laughs> life just you know opens another door but Patty was very different when she came back I mean if you listen to our 70s albums it's a journey of self-discovery it's from Jesus died for somebody's sins, but, but not, not mine, mine. Yeah. to the final track on Wave, where she's walking along the beach with Pope John Paul I, and kind of finding a certain element of faith, having gone through the entire spectrum of, I hesitate to say rock and roll stardom, but of course, that was what it was, you know, our, our past from Horses to Radio Ethiopia to Easter to Wave is a complete narrative in the same way that the Velvet Underground first four albums are. You know, I mean, I, it's kind of uncanny to me, but in the end of it, you know, Lou, the Velvet Underground, the third album with I'm Set Free and Everything, that's like Easter, you know? And then, you know, the kind of perhaps touch more pop than it needs to be, but totally great songs and an understanding that a certain group is completed its tale. And then when you come back, I mean, Patty came back essentially as a solo artist, I guess, you know, like Lou, but, you know, working with, with, within the framework of our band. But, you know, this is really... You had no I, idea that it was going to be another 30 years, though, or whatever no, no, it's no. been. I have no... I mean, to actually, years. the fact is, you know, 95, it's almost 30 years. Yeah. I mean... Who would have thunk it as a second act as strong and to watch Patty be able to develop into her, I guess, mature certain aspect of art? I mean, it's been a very creative year. I'm really proud of the records. They don't quite get as much recognition as our earlier work, but I don't care if you listen <laughs> to Constantine's Dream. You know that, you know, that stands as Patty and I often talk about as an example of our ambitious artistic reach and done in the same way that Horses is. The records still rule. They're still great. It's hard to change the world another time with the same. Like basically, the problem is it's about the place and time. It's all time. You, if Patty came out now, 
with horses, would it be recognized? I don't know. Sometimes the artist is called by the culture. Suzanne Vega, another one. You have a time in... Luca would be a hit whenever. I believe Luca's a hit sort of in any... Well, because I do think that the artist we were talking... I mean, Fast Car becoming number one again uh, shows you. When I heard that, I said... That's a little more muscular than I remember that arrangement. Oh my goodness, it's not her. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. I knew like someone had I knew that he was gonna do it. Someone had hit me to it, so I was ready for it when it showed up. But that's why I think like Luca would still be a massive um, hit at any time. That but that listen to the up. first album, which yeah, is so intimate, acoustic, coming out in a time when you have larger than life characters, Twisted Sister, of course. Cindy Lauper. I mean, you know, very bright. No, and it was colored. a gold album. And I mean, I remember, you know, that was my favorite album of that year, right? I mean, I know that album by heart. So, but uh, you know, I will be Dietrich and you, right? I, I will yeah. be Dietrich and you will be Dean. I mean, I, right? Isn't Small that, Blue Thing. Small I mean, Blue Thing, Marlene on the Wall. I mean, I remember that, all that stuff so it's, it's, incredibly it, well. And, but again, I think when it came out, the culture was beckoning for someone to bring things down to an intimate level. This is, it's almost like those transformative moments, you know, you get those, something happens and it's so well known and, you know, almost gets, it gets its definition, which to me is the, <laughs> when something is done, it's defined. And so there's a reaction. And yeah. so, you know, and you know, it kind of rises and falls. I did wonder one thing in Lightning Striking, speaking of all this stuff, which is, I felt like you do an incredible amount, spend a, a lot of time in a great way, really saluting many artists who were people of color, writers, talk about, you know, people who sue the record, all that stuff. But I was a little bit, if not surprised, I guess curious that there was not a hip hop moment. I'm not a hip hop guy. I mean, I respect it. I like it when I'm in the gym, man. And, you know, yes. I, you know, I want them to be pumping it. But I wasn't up there in Cool Herc. I was watching it from afar. You know, yeah. I mean, if I would have done a hip hop thing, I would have been a tourist. All the scenes that I wrote about affected me. They affected me you personally in a deep way. Personally. It's my personal thing. I mean... I would have liked to have done something on Manchester in the 90s. I thought that was a pretty cool scene. But, yeah, again, yeah, I... And you don't do Zeppelin either, right? Zeppelin is kind of in there, but as a precursor but, to my favorite chapter, the black metal chapter, but, right. the hair metal, black metal. Yes. <laughs> but they didn't really come out of a scene. It's like Jimmy's not that much in there because... I didn't write about, say, London and a certain thing. My England was the, the Beatles thing. I was going to ask you about Jimmy. and I, I, You I was, needed a scene. You know, one of them, obviously, one of the deepest, most effective, infecting things, that moment when Patty sees Jimmy on the stairs mm -hmm. is such a heavy moment. In the, it's a small little thing in the book, but it's so heavy. Yeah. The torch is weirdly passed. It's such a heavy thing. Did you have personal, ever personally interact with him? I only saw him twice. What, what, I didn't, what happened? I, but they were Hendrix, two incredible yeah, what was moments it? in time. I didn't even see him at his, his golden era. First time I saw Jimmy, I was at the Cafe Gogo on a Sunday Amazing. in August. Amazing. 66, I would say. They would have these, it was called the Blues Bash or something like that. And you just go there. 
And I'm sitting right this. It was a very weirdly shaped room. Uh, it was kind of rectangular, but you know, the stage, and then there was you, and then there was the sides. So I'm sitting there. Richie Havens comes on and plays. Richie, Richie. <clears throat> John Hammond comes on and plays. The great A. Oh, the A&R guy's son, John Hammond yeah, Jr. Yeah, John Hammond Jr., you know, does, and he is backed up by some electric, you know, I don't think it was the Hawks, but who knows. Then he says, I'd like to bring a friend of mine who's playing at the Cafe Wa down the street. Uh, would you put your hands together for Jimmy James? And so Jimmy Hendricks comes, I have no idea who this guy is. He, you know, in a space of maybe he was on the stage 10 minutes, five minutes, he does all his tricks, bites the guitar, plays it behind his head. I go immediately back to my band in New Jersey. I say, come on, he hands behind, really? guitars behind the head. We can do this. We can do this. Did it freak you out? Were you blown away? Like I was just blown away. I said, who is this guy? Anyway, in Crawdaddy, a couple months later, I read that Jazz Chandler has taken Jimmy James, who is playing with a group called the Blue Flames, to England. And next thing I know, it's Jimi Hendrix and the whole thing. So I got to see really early Jimi. The second time was the night after Martin Luther King was assassinated, in, and I went to see him at the Symphony Theater. Very interesting moment in time of obviously, you know, this is, I guess, early April, maybe the 5th or the 6th of 68. Newark had horrible riots the year before, and so they canceled the late show, and I have tickets to the early show, and I go there, I got my Nehru shirt on, I got my beads, I'm sandals, I'm like totally hippified out. And I go there, and I knew the theater, I'd seen the birds there, I think, also. It was easy for Central Jersey's. Anyway, Jimmy comes out, looks at a sea of completely white hippie faces, and you can tell he's disgusted. He's disgusted. He does this thing, he plays really laconically, looks at his watch a lot. <sighs> Finally, at the end of the night, takes his guitar, and instead of like righteously, pridefully smashing it, he just kind of drops it on the stage, bangs it, and leaves. Now, I've read accounts of this night in bi Jimmy biographies. He played a triumphant second oh, that's set. Amazing. Oh my God, it was incredible. You know, yeah. Well, print the myth. I always say. Yeah, but but I saw those are the only times. You know where that comes. Do you know where that comes from, by the way, the print the myth thing. Uh, no. Liberty Valance. Oh wow! It's the end of the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Oh really? That's, oh, yeah. Oh, that's that so is, great. That line was written like that's in the end of uh, Liberty Valance. I, oh. Amy and I were watching that movie for the hundredth time, but I hadn't watched it probably in ten years, and I, we just sat bolt upright. Like, oh, because it's been in the culture so much because of the fucking world. Oh, yeah. And we were like, that's... That's great to know where that comes that's from. That's where that comes from. But, but yeah. yeah, so that's what happened that night. You were actually there, and that's I not... I was actually there. It was, you know, I mean, and yeah, I mean, I understand it. Here's a black man who's missing playing with his race, you know, who's come up in the R&B circuit, and all of a sudden he's a darling and kind of scorned by black people. You know, he just, he had enough. His records had this thing. There's something that you talk about throughout the book, but also that I think anyone, the Velvet Underground albums have this. And, you know, Garrel Nick called the book Mystery Train. But, like, so much of the music that you were writing about, you were fascinated with, that I am. I always think this exists, like, on the old Pop Staples records. Like, there's this kind of, there's a mystery. 
there's an oddness, a strange, Harold Bloom's strangeness, right? There's this mysterious aspect. You know, there's this moment where you talk about when Sam Phillips got that Nashville thing going and now suddenly everything just flattened out and he's just <laughs> making music. Because there was something ineffable and mysterious and strange in all these different forms of music at their kind of nascent yeah. place. And in a weird way, that's why I think it's harder to change the culture now as the Patti Smith group. Because the last moment of mystery was the beginning, the, the verses of Because of the Night, before that chorus hits. Once the chorus of Because of the Night hits, the mystery's over. Yeah. <laughs> and the verse is very mysterious. And then that happens, and now you guys are something different. You're a known commodity. Right. I was thinking about this idea of like mystery in the art that really changes you, one, right? And you put the word in a bunch of times in the book. Like, what is that, do you think? Like, you know, when you go back and you listen to the earliest recording of those first songs that used the word rockin' in them, Good Rockin' Tonight. Right. It has that. And it's not just the way they got echo. It's like there is something that feels like voodoo. And that's on the early field recordings that Lomax got and Smith. Like that's just, that shit's just in it. What do you think that thing is? It's the thing that hasn't been figured out. I mean, that's why I love these scenes that I write about and Lightning Striking because all of them spring out of nowhere. They spring out of places that have, even if they have history, they haven't figured out. I mean, Hank Williams, and it's not just his death. Those first Hank Williams records, they're mysterious. The pain or there is some, like you could, like some people would say, well, the vocal chain does it. But no, it's not the vocal chain. It's something, right? And it's also artists who are outside whatever's happening trying to figure out what's happening next. I mean... Is yeah. it a conscious trying to figure out what's happening next or is it just they're uh, expressing you, you what you they can, are? They're just cannot, expressing their... Can, because if you figure it, it's like the boss town sound. You know, you right. can't figure it out. It has to, you know, you know, it'll be figured out when it acquires a definition, grunge or British beat or, you know, whatever. Oh, it's great that you point out grunge because, yes, Kurt and Nirvana for sure. How but, different but were all those bands? They were, but Pearl Jam, if you think about Jeremy... And black, yeah, those have that mist. Those things were not like anything else. Exactly. And it's this uh, this kind of alchemy of that because even if you go back to the Andy Wood things, he was great. There's nothing wrong with Mother Love Bone, but Mother Love Bone is not Pearl Jam because it's the combination of things, right? It's- and malfunction. My favorite song that I learned about in that whole Seattle chapter was "In Your Heart, Not Your Hands." And I actually, I was going to sing it right before the pandemic hit. We were in Seattle. We are going to play the Paramount. I'm halfway through the Seattle chapter, so I'm thinking, oh, yeah, here's the climactic moment. And, of course, our show is canceled. Uh, So you didn't get to do it. I got to do it because there's a weird bar that I was in the night before. And I said, well, I don't know. I got my guitar. I got my pedals. You know, if you get me an amp, I'll stand on your stage and holler. And I I got to sing it right before the world shut down. But those, to me, it's a process. And you usually have about five years. And the first couple are where everybody doesn't know what the hell is happening. CBGB's is an example. Those bands, they don't really know what they're doing, how they're playing. But they're like, the mystery, it's like a detective novel. They're figuring it out. 
when you get to the end of a detective novel and it's solved, yeah, okay, and then it becomes punk. It's a, right in some way. Like I was thinking about REM, like because of my age and everything. They're like my favorite band, you know. Like and obviously that's how I got to the Velvet Underground was by Michael covering the the cover of Pale Blue Eyes. Wow. And there were two covers that he did, the band did. That that's what got me to the Velvet Underground in 1983, right? I didn't really know them. You can imagine in my house, my pop wasn't putting the Velvet Underground on. But Michael Stipe led me to the Velvet Underground, and that's when I found that. But like the first three REM albums and the EP, they have all that mystery. And then Gaiman comes in and makes Life's First Pageant. I could argue that Life's First Pageant is the best REM album, but it has but. none of that. It, it's an, I listen to it all the time. Still... But it is not the find. You're, it's exactly right. It is not them finding what REM is. That's the fun part. I mean, actually, the one chapter I didn't do, because all of a sudden I realized this book is going to take forever, and I got to prune something, was the chapter. It was going to be a combo chapter of Athens and Minneapolis. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. 19, 1984. You should have done I wish you would have done it. But. I wish I would have done it too. I had access to all of those people, but I just, you know, I mean, well, you know, when the commemorative edition comes out no, in 10 the, years. Well, I was going to say, like, I love Please to Meet Me and my dear friend who died, Joe Hardy, was my, one of my very best friends. He engineered Please to Meet Me and mixed it with Jim Dickinson, produced it. Like real, you know, people who love the replacements, the first two albums... They are so fucking weird. And then Please to Meet Me is a record that we could recognize. It's a recognizable album that's properly made. I love it. The songs are incredible. But Tim and Let It Be are different, right? Because they're so sh mysterious. Well, as a producer, I was kind of in a, I was in a weird position because I would get called to do the transition album. Of course you would. You know, like I got to do Soul Asylum's half right. the time. One of the great progressive punk albums ever. I mean, that's about the most abstruse record to be played at that volume. But I would, you know, The Weather Prophets, uh, James, whenever the groups from who are figuring themselves out, and I would help them figure out. And sometimes, because the record wasn't as mysterious, but... To be honest, you're also trying to make them a little less mysterious for the universe at large. Of course. And that's, you know, that's a fine, If the replacements never had Alex Chilton, who knows if the, every, how many people would have still discovered the exactly. earlier two albums. Like, Husker Du never got to have that album, and that's why Husker Du, great, as good a band... You know, well, I got a funny Husker Du story. What's your Husker Du story? And I tell it, I, actually, I just play with Bob Mole. I didn't tell it to him. I was called by Karen Berg at yeah, Warner, Warner Brothers. She signed R.E.M. to Warner's off IRS. Yeah, yeah, no, she's great the best. AMR person. She was interested in me producing Husker Du. So I said, sure. Uh, you know, I'll go, you know, I'll go talk to them. You know, I'm a big fan of uh, Eight Miles High and all the other, you know, crazy stuff they're doing. So I went to see him at the Ritz, and they were amazing. One of the best concerts I ever saw. Just completely on fire, everything. So I go in the back, and I say, hi, you know, I'm Lenny, you know, blah, blah, blah. So what kind of record? I asked Grant, I said, what kind of record are you thinking of making? You know, just making, you know, chatting. He says, first take, right there, you know, in your face, that's it. Okay. Over to Bob, I say, so Bob, what kind of record do you think you're going to make? He says, I'd really like it to be layered, oh, Beatles, you know, I really, you know, I'd like to really explore the way you could expand these songs. So I went back to Karen, I said, you know, I'm not getting caught in the middle of this. 
<laughs> well, you know, it was very difficult, those two guys, but they were both so brilliant. Oh, uh, man, so great. Clearly. Man, I think we got to our time here. There's so much to talk to you about. You've done so many incredible, incredible things. And well, it's totally boring. We could talk for hours. I know, it's true, man. Always we got, good. Because we've been in this a long time. We've seen the creative spirit from many different aspects. And hey, we're still here creating. No, it's an amazing thing. I guess the last thing would be like, as you see the legacy of the work you did, like, you know, whole radio networks, like Garage Band. I mean, Stevie, I love Steve Van Zandt, and obviously the two, you know, you sort of first codify what this is, and he ex expands it into this thing that more, you know, lots of people can relate to. And then you see things like Luca leading the way to Lilith Fair, which leads the way to Brandy Carlisle, who I think is oh yeah genius like the greatest thing that's <laughs> totally. sliced bread and her records are strange like they have that mystery somehow she's just amazing but can you think about legacy or does it if you think about legacy does it kind of like fuck you up well yeah i mean if you think about how you're going to be regarded in the future you know because all the stuff that really has stuck to the wall for me has been just like who would have thunk it you know wacky poet from the lower east side you know strange folk singer, still singing, pushing too hard. I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, really, I try not to because I'm interested in the work I'm going to do tomorrow. I mean, that's really my thing, you know. And you know, because I was writing songs back when you gave me some money to make some of those songs. I have a lot of songs that I've never realized that, you know, at this point, I don't understand the music business at all. But I'd like to put them on a piece of something because, I don't know, that's what you do. And whether anybody hears it at this point, I don't care. You know, I like the writing of a song. You know, I like chewing on a song when I have a, a good riff in my head. And I have a good riff in my head right now. And, you know, I'm taking my time with it to find out what it is I want to say. Because really, there's so many songs in the world. You got to make sure yours has a meaning to live that's the important thing but you know i really yeah I, I look at what i've done and i find wow that's a lot of stuff you know the the shelf where i have all the records i produced or played on or you know wrote liner notes for or whatever you know it's it's substantial which is good but i'm a worker bee and really all i care about is getting up tomorrow morning and smoking a joint and thinking well where will my imagination take me? Actually, it's freeing because I've done enough stuff where I feel like, okay, I've been victorious in life. Where will my imagination take me is a perfect place yeah. to leave this on. <laughs> Lenny K, are you anywhere on social media? I have one of those famous Instagram sites, Lenny underscore K. So you can find Lenny underscore K on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram too, just my name. And Lenny, man, great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Brian, what a great conversation, man. Really, yeah, it was perfect, so much man. fun. You know, if you want to call me back for part seven in a couple years, and when I do all those things that I'm imagining, let me know. Open, inv <laughs> open invitation. Thanks, Lenny. Talk to you Take soon. Take care, brother. Bye.